0: Hello, and welcome to a new year of New Books in Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. For each episode of the podcast, we feature an interesting new book on some area of sports, and we talk with the author about the research that went into the book, the ideas that came out of it, and maybe some other issues on the side. The aim of the podcast is to allow you to hear from some smart people doing in-depth work on different aspects of sports, both here in the U.S. and in other parts of the world. My guest on this week's episode is economic historian David Sirdam. Dave has published three previous books on the economic history of baseball and the economics of professional sports in North America. His new book is titled, The Rise of the National Basketball Association, and it was published in October of 2012 by the University of Illinois Press. Like his previous work, this book focuses primarily on the economic history of professional basketball in its early years from 1946 to 1961. But as you'll hear, Dave does talk about the impact of key players like George Mikan and Will Chamberlain. We discuss the early changes in the game that distinguished pro basketball from the college game. And he has some colorful stories about this rough-and-tumble and and really second-rate collection of teams that was trying to establish itself in post-war America. And Dave also offers some interesting remarks as to why economists are particularly drawn to studying professional sports leagues. I hope you enjoyed the interview. My guest this week on New Books in Sports is David Serdam. Dave, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. So I will say as an introduction that Dave is Associate Professor of Economics at the University of Northern Iowa, where he teaches courses on microeconomics and managerial economics, Uh, But his research has been in economic history, and he's crafted, I would say, something of a distinct profile as a historian of sports economics. So, Dave, I'll I'll ask you to start. What led you, uh, in your research, to turn to the economic history of sports?
1: Ever since I've been a small child, I've been interested in sports. My brother was on the local high school basketball team, and uh, so I learned to... To follow basketball through him. Unfortunately, I didn't have his talent, but uh, always liked it. Partly because there were a lot of numbers involved, and I'm very quantitative. And in fact, you'll you'll see that if you look at the books, there's a lot of tables and there's a lot of quantitative evidence, which is different than typical histories of, of professional team sports. And so um, it's just something that I I've followed. I used to play dramatic baseball. We had a dramatic baseball league and. You got to know quite a bit about the numbers that were involved in baseball and how to put together a team that was successful or, in some cases, not successful. As an academic, I started out working with another childhood um, interest of mine, the American Civil War, wrote a, a dissertation and then later a book on the economics of the Union-Navy blockade during the Civil War. did quite a bit of research on that, and at one point one of my uh, the senior colleagues at uh, Loyola University suggested that I try another field just to uh, show that I could do more than than uh, the economics of the Civil War. Economics of sports, obviously, was an easy thing for me to move into since I had read quite a bit about it. So that's basically how I got involved.
0: So much of your previous work has been on the, the economic history of baseball. And so what led you now to write this book on the history of the National Basketball Association?
1: Well, it's actually um, Driven partly by the data, basically from 1951 to I believe the end of the 1957 season. The NBA owners submitted data to Congress, just as did the baseball owners and also the football owners. So, a forthcoming book from the University of the Nebraska Press is on the National Football League. It'll be out probably November of this year.
0: So you then so you came across a trove of uh, all the, these materials that have been presented to Congress and, and this has been driving multiple books out of this, this research material.
1: Yes, uh, other people have used the data to some degree um, for instance, James Clerk and Rodney Fort and their book catered and they go into some detail, but uh, I, I try to take a different plan on it. Some of the things I'm most interested in include revenue sharing how much money actually got shifted around to the different teams. And the NBA will be an interesting case because they don't have any revenue sharing, basically. They were similar to hockey, and I guess that's one of the interesting things about them.
0: Well, let's turn to the book, and uh, from the first chapter, your approach as an economic historian is evident, as you indicated, Uh, in that instead of talking about the background of the early NBA by looking at the popularity of college basketball or professional barnstorming teams, uh, instead you look at theoretical approaches in, in economic history to player salaries and competitive balance in in sports leagues. So, why is this an important starting point for looking at the origins of a professional sports association?
1: This relates that these leagues are basically cartels. One of the chief attractions of sports economics is that uh, because they act as cartels, and because they're actually overt about it, that they're a fascinating thing to study. Because a lot of times, most cartels are covert because they're against the law. (laughs) So for obvious reasons, we don't have uh, access to a lot of the data of what's going on. But in this case, we have a fair amount of of information about this. Um, What the owner chooses to do is often publicize, although not always. um, And that's why it's a good idea to be able to get the league minutes or whatever internal league publication you can get your hands on. Typically, you can't get your hands on them, but occasionally some of them slip through But the idea that it's a cartel raises questions of how do they operate, and when you think of a cartel, you've had to come up with answers to three questions. First of all, can you come to an agreement? Second of all, um, the agreement will pertain to how are you going to split up the profits, because presumably if you cooperate and form a cartel, you're going to make more money profits collectively than if you act independently. So the first thing is you've got to figure out how are we going to divide the profits. And since each one of these owners is self-interested, it's not obvious that they can come to an agreement. Um, I often think of the old Bug Bunny car- cartoon where he's with the two little gangster characters from the Warner Brothers uh, movies, and they're splitting up the profits, and Bug says, one for you, one for me, two for me, one for you. And, <laughs> and uh, if you think about it, typically that wouldn't go very well. Of course, Bug's dealing was uh, not very bright gangster. But in a way, that, that's a good way to think about how would you Set up these cartels because the New York team probably is going to say, "Well, we're the biggest market; we're going to draw the most fans. We should get more money than, let's say, the Sheboygan market if Sheboygan was in the same league." Which, as I said, they were only for one year, and you can imagine how difficult that might be. Um, so that's the first thing they have to uh, to, uh, to manage. Second, then they had to decide, "Well, how are we going to police each other? How are we going to monitor what we're going to do?" because it's not obvious that once you make an agreement that people aren't going to uh, sort of covertly cheat on the agreement. Uh, the third thing, if you're successful, presumably you should be making pretty good profits, profits above what a normal industry would make, and other people will be envious. And so wherever you have these economic profits, people want to enter the market. And in fact, the National Basketball Association will find itself battling two versions of the American Basketball Association, one in, I believe, 1961, and then, of course, the more famous 1967 to 68. So the sports cartels are just fascinating for economists because we do get to see how a cartel might operate. How are they going to divide up the territories? How are they going to maintain, let's say, discipline to make sure people aren't cheating so the cartel doesn't fall apart? And how are they going to resist anybody that wants to come in? And those are key questions in in thinking about these the industries, so the, the sports industries give us a fairly, fairly open set of, of observations, I guess you would say.
0: So the league begins in in 1946. Yes, the uh,
1: Basketball Association of America.
0: Right under the name of the Basketball Association of America, and and I'm, I want to ask you to give a sketch of the league in in its first seasons, in terms of uh, uh, who were the founders of the league, and and. Uh, Uh, You know, what were the backgrounds of some of these, some of these team owners?
1: Most of the owners owned hockey arenas and they were looking for an alternative event. Some, a sports writer decided, well, maybe it's time for a professional basketball league in the Northeast, in the larger cities. College basketball was very popular in the late forties until the, the gambling scandals. And so uh, some of these owners got together and they said, well, that sounds like a pretty good idea. Most of them knew nothing about basketball but they knew how to run an arena, and I guess they probably thought they knew how to attract crowds. So they get together. Ned Irish is one of the exceptions. He's the um, president, or he has a, a ties with the Madison Square Garden in New York. He runs the basketball doubleheaders. He makes himself fairly wealthy, not, not a plutocrat by any means, but he's he probably doing pretty well for himself. He has some experience, and obviously he knows a lot of people in basketball. Uh, the Boston Gardens owner, um, Walter Brown. I don't think he knew a lot about basketball, but, again, he was an owner of the arena. He will stay in the league through thick and thin. Uh, most of the other people in the Basketball Association of America will fold. Uh, only three of the 11 teams that started will ever actually become NBA teams. The attrition rate is pretty ferocious. Uh,
0: and, and only two teams, two teams from 1946, are still playing well, in the Oh, three, actually. Three, yeah?
1: Yeah, they're— uh, New York and Boston and then the Philadelphia Warrior will through various well they'll oh, move okay. to San Francisco yeah.
0: yeah yeah so i was thinking two that are in the same same places City. when yeah. they start out yeah, yeah. yeah
1: that's correct so the first season is uh, pretty horrendous um, you could basically paint the league in red through red ink they're losing a lot of money even by december they're they're some of the weaker teams are complaining that they're just hemorrhaging money Um, there's not much they can do because no one's really making much money. The New York Knicks would seem to be in a pretty good position but they had hedged their bets. They only scheduled a few games at Madison Square Garden. Most of the other games are going to be played at the 69th Regiment Armory which seats 5,200 into Madison Square Garden which I believe is on the order of 18,000, 19,000. So even if the Knicks are a particularly successful team which they were not that season, they're not going to draw a lot of people. And of course they're they're hemmed in because they can't reduce the player salaries too much. Um, originally, they wanted to try to limit it to $3,000 per player, but that immediately, within the same opening meeting, they, they immediately raised that. And my guess is that that was hard for them to uh, adhere to, partly because they had made a big selling point that they were having college graduates, and they weren't going to pick up a lot of these uh, touring basketball players who are associated with sort of uh, maybe almost as low as carnival roadies. So they wanted to present to the public this idea that their players were college graduates and this was more of a, I don't want to say gentile, because that wouldn't be correct, but but these were sort of classy kind of people. They weren't the, the low-life uh, barnstorming players. But the problem with that is that the uh, college graduates, in, even in the late 1940s, typically made more money than everybody else. So if you don't pay these people enough money, they may just go into industry. And so you can't cut them too much below $5,000. Maybe you could get some of them for $3,500 or $4,000, but you can't go too low on the salary. So they're hemmed in on that end. On the other hand, they can't pay much more than $5,000 because they're simply not bringing in the money. Some of the teams, I think their actual gate revenue was only less than $100,000. So if you've got ten players, and even four thousand dollars a player, that's forty thousand right off the top, and it's difficult to make money because you got to pay for the arena rental, even though you may be renting it to yourself. But but basically, you've got a lot of overhead. So a lot of these teams they're, they'll go under. Now they may blame players' salary for that, but really the reason the reason is they just couldn't bring enough fans in. People just didn't care. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's just a, a tough situation.
0: And you and you have some great stories in the book about how the owners. Uh, tried different cost-cutting measures in in other uh, other areas and just show how how basically cheap they were. So could you talk about some of those?
1: Oh, sure. Uh, The cheapness will persist well into the 1950s. So many people were truly operating on a uh, shoelace, so to speak. Uh, Eddie Gottlieb, who owned the Philadelphia Warriors, if I recall correctly, you got to remember, it's been a couple of years since I wrote this book, and there's a couple of books intervening, so I get people jumbled a little bit. But <laughs> I believe uh, he got the team because the original owners were going to vote, and he got it for, I want to say 50000 or or $100,000, of which he borrowed some. But he himself, not a particularly wealthy guy, so he's always pinching pennies. And they tell stories that uh, he wouldn't provide soap or towels in the visiting locker room, <laughs> so you had to bring your own. The, uh, most of the owners would make their players drive cars to the games in the northeast between Boston, New York, and Philadelphia. So you can imagine this is winter in the northeast, and you get these big basketball players, and, they're in, and they stuff four or five guys into a car, maybe even six. They take two or three cars, and they get up to the city. One story is that it was either Gottlieb or one of the other owners didn't want to pay for a garage, and they're a couple minutes before 6 o'clock. Apparently at 6 o'clock the meters go off you don't have to pay parking meter. So he told the guy circling around the block a few times until it was 6 o'clock, he didn't want to pay for a garage. All sorts of stories similar to that, that these people were just, uh, they were nickel and diming. And you have to give them credit that they had the, the fortitude or the foolishness uh, to persist with this venture because they were probably a good 15 years out out of making consistent profits. And that's a long time. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it's a wonder that so many people absorbed the loss that they did.
0: And one of the one of the, the great figures in basketball history who appears <coughs> in your book is Red Auerbach, the longtime coach of the Boston Celtics. And and you and you're telling Auerbach's involvement with the early uh, BBA is is something or BAA, excuse me, is something of an example of what a low rent operation this this was in its early years.
1: Red Auerbach gets a set of athletes that uh, he literally goes to a phone booth, apparently, or he sits at a desk, calls these guys up and says, hey, we're forming a team in Washington. You want to play for us? And he tells them how much money he can pay, probably 5000 maybe. And he gets a collection of people, and they win over 80% of the game. Now, they don't win the title, but they win over 80% of the game, which is pretty good in the NBA. Um, you've got to be a, a remarkably good team over the regular season to win 80%. Um, I'm not even sure the Miami Heat did that last year. So he's able to put together a pretty good collection of athletes, uh, basically calling people that he knew. Now, he got the coaching job because the Washington owner, as I said, he knew nothing about basketball. And Arbach just brazenly calls him out and says, you know, I know how to coach. And apparently he had very limited coaching experience, but Red Arbach was a man of tremendous self, uh, self-confidence. And he talked himself into becoming the coach, and apparently he also had discretion over the player salaries or, or the player acquisition. So he built this team up, gets out of scratch. Uh, pretty remarkable to think that you get all these free agents. Now, the National Basketball Association uh, League, of course, did have players in the contract, so he wasn't able to poach many of their players. Nor do I think he necessarily tried. The level of player competition for the players between the NBL, NBL and the b and now you got making confused, BAA, but not. <laughs> was not quite as uh, intense as it would would be in football when they had the AAFC and the NFL. I think the owner realized there just wasn't enough money to throw large sums at at these people coming out of college. The other disadvantage, of course, for the BAA was by the time they got organized, uh, the Chicago National Basketball League in Chicago with the only big city team in that league. They had already signed up George Mikan from nearby DePaul. And that was a, a coup because George Mikan was basically Mr. Basketball for that time period. And in fact, uh, George Mikan's a fascinating character. I don't know if he was one of the questions you were going to refer to.
0: Well, yeah, I was going to ask about uh, ask about that with the National Basketball League, which was this this uh, competitor league <laughs> in the early going. And uh, of course, those who know early NBA history know that George Mikan ends up in in the National Basketball Association. So, uh, so how was it that that Mikan ended up in in the early NBA, and what really brought the the demise of this this other other league, the National Basketball League? People who
1: maybe don't know a lot about early basketball, George Mikan was roughly six foot ten. He wore these, uh, I believe, they were black plastic frame glasses or something, but. He literally reminded me of uh, George Reeves that played uh, Superman in the TV version. And I don't know if you're old enough to remember that. Yeah, I know, back
0: in the 1950s, yeah, yeah. So he looked like Clark
1: Kent. Now, whether you want to call him Superman or not, I'll I'll leave to your individual preference. He certainly wasn't meek and mild on the court. The the stories were that he could certainly hold his own, because you can imagine the leading scorer and the biggest star. People were throwing elbows, they're tripping him, they're grabbing him. Uh, It was a pretty rough game, and we'll get back to that point later. But he um, basically, every season except for the season he got hurt and maybe one other season, every season that he played, his team won the championship, whether in the National Basketball League or in the National Basketball Association once he ends up in that league, which is a remarkable record. Um, I think the only other players that kind of come to mind similar to that would be maybe Bill Russell and possibly Joe DiMaggio. Uh, He's the difference maker. He's the guy that dominates the league. So he signed with Chicago because he wants to live in Chicago. He's pursuing a law degree, which is something else that's fascinating about many of these players. They uh, will parlay their undergraduate college degrees with professional training. So some of them become doctors, such as Ernie Vandeway, the father of Kiki Vandeway. Others are um, are rocket science, so to speak. They're working in aerospace as engineers. But these people were pretty educated in that sense. So Mike and play for the Chicago Basketball Association, about a month into the season he files a lawsuit against his owner because apparently the owner is not paying him the bonus that he promised him um, and I guess George gets to try out his uh, burgeoning legal talent so the team sues him and so they work through this lawsuit and eventually comes back after about a month and lead the team to the title his owner apparently decided that he was too big for the National Basketball League so he wanted to form a new league with himself as president and so uh, that league goes bust almost immediately and Mike and his you would think, would be a free agent, which presumably should have meant that he could make even more money, because he's obviously the best player in, in the world. Instead, the National Basketball League claimed, "No, nah, he's still under contract, so they assigned him to Minneapolis, and that's how Minneapolis got George Mikan. It's, uh, his other team voted, and they assigned him to Minneapolis because Minneapolis was the transplanted Detroit team that went 4-40 and the previous season, and that's a pretty bad record by anybody's reckoning. And so that's how Mike ends up at uh, Minneapolis. It's kind of a screwball story. Basketball Association of American Owners begin to realize, well, we've got to get people such as George Mike in our league because he's the drawing card. So they offer some of the stronger teams in the National Basketball League to come over, and eventually the whole league comes over pretty much, and you've got 17 teams in this National Basketball Association for one season. Again, these include Sheboygan, Rochester, Waterloo, it just a mess, and by uh, season end, well, actually, they all make it through the season, which is a miracle, but six of the teams immediately fold, and then over the next three years, one team per season will fold until they get down to eight teams. Of the eight teams, five of them are from the National Basketball League, so the National Basketball League teams, in some sense, proved more durable than the basketball association even though the basketball association was in the bigger cities but that's how and ended up in Minneapolis a, a bizarre story of an uppity owner and some sort of just grab bag will send him to the worst team in the league he will I believe approach $25,000 a year in salary and even if you adjust it for days earning it's probably less than the minimum in the major league baseball but there just simply wasn't enough money to pay him more there weren't enough fans I tell my students that if you want to make a lot of money in our society, you've got to be talented, productive, but you've got to be talented and productive, and something that people are willing to pay for. 1950s, people aren't willing to pay much for, for professional basketball. You put Michael Jordan, you put LeBron James back in 1950. He dominates the league. He makes twenty five thousand. Too bad for him. So uh, times have changed.
0: And yeah, you know, something that something that you said in that regard, or something that uh, that comes out in the book, is uh, part of the problem was. So this is the immediate post-war period. There's there's a, a sense of uh you know an emerging prosperity. People are back from the war, they have time for for entertainment. And so there's this move to provide different forms of entertainment. But something that you do bring up especially in in the bigger cities in the Midwest and the Northeast is that there was too much entertainment. There were, that there were too many options. Is is this the case for of what was hurting the NBA in its early years? Well, they they were certainly up
1: against stiff competition in New York. As I, I think I said on the opening day of the first season in BAA, the Knicks were up against I, I believe it was Lawrence Olivier live on stage. Now, I don't know how many people remember Lawrence Olivier, but I suppose you could argue that in some sense he's the Michael Jordan of live theater back in the nineteen forties. There's obviously a lot of other professional sports teams and people are used to seeing the very best. Uh, They're used to seeing the Yankees. They're used to seeing the football giants who were almost perennially a a good team in the National Football League. So you can imagine what their response might have been to uh, this new New York Knicks team. And as I point out in the book, I believe the advertisement was that they they featured some guy named Sonny Hertzberg. (laughs) Now, I don't know about you, but I, I doubt there's very many people alive who would know who Sonny was. I can't even remember his name. I think it's Hurtzberg. He's not a household name, is he? And they talked about, well, I believe he was some sort of leading scorer for Rhode Island. Again, (laughs) now back then, Rhode Island might have been a pretty decent team, but uh, by our reckoning, what's Rhode Island? You can imagine what the New Yorkers would think. Well, who's this guy? Now, there was a corresponding advantage. Presumably the New Yorkers were more savvy about college players than everybody else, because they did have these doubleheaders. So maybe there's a countervailing force on that. But, again, you don't have George Mikan. Um, you don't have Bobby Wanzer and Bobby Davis, who are the two of the top guards in professional basketball. You, you don't have these people. you get got these other people who are pretty good players, but I don't think they've got the name recognition. You're basically trying to launch a league similar to the American Football League does in 1961, and they didn't have very many marquee names the American Basketball Association, in 1967. They didn't get very many marquee names until they started signing Rick Barry and Billy Cunningham. So that's, that's really the challenge. So in this case, it's reversed. This time it's the big cities who don't have the players and have to establish credibility. And to tell you how bad the credibility was, basically as Red we recounted, there were people who thought that Holy Cross, which at the time was a basketball power, could beat the Boston Celtics. They, people just didn't think that the professional players were very high-quality And that's something they've got to establish. Uh, The other thing that's a blessing and a curse is the Harlem Globetrotter. Now, we think of the Harlem Globetrotters as entertainment. And if you think about it, they're probably pretty good athletes because you have to have a lot of skill to do what they do. But we don't think of them necessarily as serious basketball. But back in the late 40s, the Harlem Globetrotter had won, I believe, at least one world championship where all the amateur player teams and even some of the professional teams would participate in a tournament. They were a very good team. There was no reason for any of these owners to think that black players couldn't cut it in the national basketball or whatever basketball league they were looking at. And we'll come back to that, I presume,
0: later on. Well, I'll bring that up right right now to ask about okay. integration, because, uh, of course, African-American players have been central to the history of the NBA. But in its first years, correct me if I'm wrong, the league was all white.
1: It's all white until, I believe, 19. 19- Fifty-one.
0: Yeah, yeah. So what? Off by year. So what then brought brought integration of professional basketball after after uh, the first seasons where it was not integrated?
1: My guess is that it was partly fear of Abe Saperstein and the Harlem Globetrotters. Uh, the Globetrotters would play many of the teams BAA once or twice a season, and those would be the rare times the team would sell out or even come close to selling out their arena. The Globetrotters may well have been the key to survival for some of these teams. So he got a corner on the African-American players, and it's not obvious that the owners really wanted to, to challenge him on that. That may be one explanation. I suppose you could fall back on the explanation that the owners were racist, although really I don't see that they've got quite the same attitude as the baseball owners and some of the football owners. I, I don't see the explicit comment made in the press, and maybe it's because they're not getting much press to begin with, but I don't see the comment that you get was from George Preston Marshall in the NFL, from Tom Yockey, who, although may not directly refer to it, the Boston Red Sox, are certainly had their problems with African-American players, as I believe. I think it's Howard Bryant describes in his book. So you don't have this this level. And as I said, because there had been a lot of integrated competition between blacks and whites in basketball, these players and, and the owners, all the observers knew the black players could play. Uh, I don't think there was anybody who didn't think they could play. So you don't see the argument that they can't, they're not good enough. You don't see that argument. And that's different from the other two sports. Uh, the National Basketball League integrates right after the war. They have uh, there was a fist fight between a black player and a white player. Both players said it had nothing to do about race. And I'm, I'm perfectly willing to accept that because, frankly, these games were noted for a lot of fights. The old joke, I went to a hockey game, or well, no, I, I'm sorry, I went to a fight and a hockey game broke out. You could just easily use that joke to basketball. I went to a Basketball game and a fight broke out because apparently these were uh, pretty rough and tumble games. So the National Basketball League decided not to have any black players for a year, but as they're struggling to uh, help finish out one of the seasons, they invite Pop Gates and his all black team to be one of the teams in the league. And so um, Gates, in some sense, may actually be the first African American coach of of a major professional basketball league team, but he didn't get the credit for that. They compete. Uh, they're not particularly successful for various reasons. Once the winnowing starts from the 17 team down to the 11 team, the very next season, I believe, is when they begin to start uh, signing up African-American players. Now, some of these players will, will grouse, if you look at what some of their experiences in some of the um, oral histories, some of them will complain that they thought there was a quota. There may well have been. They thought that they were the coaches were encouraged not to let them be the the big scorers, and they often ended up guarding each other. And oftentimes, a team would have two so they could room together. They, they hadn't gotten to the point where they thought it was okay to room a black and a white, which by our MRA seemed kind of bizarre. But, but you got to remember, this is the 1940s. Um, people think differently. And so um, it, it's a slow but fairly steady start. By about, I believe, 1955, all the teams are integrated. And the teams that don't integrate, I don't think it's necessarily because they were it was racially motivated. I think they just hadn't found the players they wanted to integrate. So they actually complete their integration process ahead of Major League Baseball and ahead of the National Football League. So uh, in that sense, I, I they there to be credited. But uh, it, it's an interesting process. But as I said, I think it's, it's helped along by the fact that many of the players had played in, in either on integrated teams in college or, again, black players in college, whether teammates or opponents, so I, I don't think it was a big deal to them. Now, the flip side of that is when they go on the road, of course, the black players have to uh, endure a lot of indignities. Uh, they're not allowed to stay in the same restaurants. Uh, people in the crowd might have taunted them and various other uh,
0: other situations such as that. Dave, something that you discuss in the book is that uh, uh, from from the start, the league and its teams tried to market its stars so can you talk about how as as the lean league gained stability uh how it was able to uh to market these key players as it does today
1: well the key player that they're marketing is George miken they might try to market some of the others but there's the there's the famous marquee apparently in front of madison square garden tonight miken versus the new york knicks and uh, that game actually did not sell out um <laughs> in fact it, it's the minneapolis lakers are sort of a puzzle some some years they sell out all the games at the garden another year they maybe only attract 11 or 12,000 out of the 18 but it's clear that they're, they're the marquee team because the Knicks will typically play only a few teams at the garden and the rest of the teams they'll play at the armory so the game they didn't think were going to be very popular they shift to the armory and they tried to get the best team to play in the garden pretty obvious that the Knicks and, and Ned Irish makes no uh, He's not hiding this. He basically wants this league to be first class. That creates a tension in the league because most of the other people are just barely hanging on. Ned Irish has access to Madison Square Garden deep pockets. They can lose a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. It's not a not a serious issue. Walter Brown of the Celtics is willing to lose a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. Not an issue. Most of the rest of the owners, they lose fifty thousand dollars, it could be game over for them. So there's a tension in this league because Irish wants to do everything first class. The interesting thing, I think, and Leonard had pointed that out in um, 24 Seconds to Shoot, his history of, of the National Basketball Station, and that in some ways this tension may have been ultimately beneficial because ultimately both elements become ingrained in the league. They do work pretty hard at making it more of a first class league. But they also realize that a lot of it's going to have to be. They got to get the stars, and they got to make the game attractive. Now, if you recall the movie Hoosiers, mm-hmm. um, my guess is that that's probably probably a fairly accurate depiction of what the game would have been like in the fifties. Even though that's a high school game, but most of the players would have been doing set shots. All the jump shots slowly getting ingrained into pro basketball. Joe Folks was one of the early ones in the late forties, but it didn't become universal until somewhat later. It just takes a while for people to learn how to shoot the jump shot. So a lot of these players are using the two-hand set shot which we somewhat derisively call the granny shot or something. Apparently it was a completely different style of shooting and a different kind of game. It's not the vertical game that we associate with the NBA today. It's more a path and cut set shots and ticks and screens. But it's also a rough and tumble game. They talk about how many players have lost teeth and they they joke that anybody that's been in the league for any period of time wouldn't have all his front teeth. And so in some sense, they're worse than hockey players because they don't have any protective gear for their face. And if you've ever played basketball, you know, of course, that an errant elbow can uh, do quite a bit of dental damage. So um, I, I think if you went back to watch the game, in the footage that you easily see on ESPN or something, it does look as though the game's in slow motion.
0: And one of the, one of the arguments you make throughout the book is that a reason for uh, the success of the early NBA, and really by the late 50s and into the early 60s, is that the team owners were willing to experiment with the game. They put, they put in place innovations that not only approved their product uh, in the immediate sense, but also made a, a lasting influence on the sport.
1: Yes, I, I think they were compelled to do so partly because, as I mentioned, they were in competition with college basketball, and at that time college basketball was the glamour basketball event. Uh, maybe the Globetrotters would have been right up there. But even with the gambling scandals throughout the 1950s, college basketball was pretty much the, the marquee event. Uh, the NBA decided that our game are getting to be kind of rough and tumble or people are, are probably somewhat bigger because they're the cream of the crop. And they know all the tricks. You may have probably heard, a lot of fans have heard about the famous game where the the Fort Wayne Pistons, who become the Detroit Pistons, are playing the Minneapolis Lakers. And I believe the game's in Minneapolis. And the Lakers have a home court advantage like almost every team did back then. It's much more pronounced than it is today. And so the the Pistons are um, underdogs, and they decide they're just going to stall And the score becomes 19 to 18. And a lot of people think that's the game that triggers the 24 second clock, but it's actually three or four seasons before the 24 second clock. Now, one of the interesting things about that, when I was trying to find out what was the next lowest scoring game, and I never actually identified that game, but I came across a reference that said that the 19 to 18 point game was one point less than the previous low. That must
0: be (laughs)
1: 38 points. Um, What Leonard Coppett and some of the other people side is the proximate cause for the 24 second clock is, is a game between the Knicks and the Celtics, which I believe went three, maybe four overtimes. It's on television and it's a foul plagued, I think it, I want to say there were 98 fouls called and they're pushing, shoving, and they're constant march to the free throw line. And I believe the network pulled the plug on it, it, didn't show it at the end of the game and I'm, nobody called apparently, <laughs> <laughs> nobody cared. Um, so that was a pretty good indication that this was not going well, and uh, they they came up with the idea of the 24-second clock. Initially, it's not making a big difference in the attendance, partly because it coincides with the year that George Mikan retires for the first time, and it also uh, and that basically lead to uh, the decline of the Lakers. Uh, the other strong team, the Royals out of Rochester, they also go into the funk. It's interesting to speculate whether Mike could have thrown under a uh, 24 second clock. We'll never really know for certain. He comes back for a few games, but then he retires again. But the game, of course, eventually they started getting the players who can use that, such as Oscar Robertson and Elgin Baylor and all these other people, and the game began to reach what we would recall. I don't know how old you are, but people my age, mid 50s, would think of sort of a golden age where you have the 60s and you've got. The Celtics, the six, 76ers and the Lakers. You've got the great players: Russell, Chamberlain, Baylor, uh, Robertson, Jerry West. You go down the line. There's there's a lot of great players that we remember. So by the '60s, they've evolved into the game that's a little more what we would recognize as modern basketball.
0: And so, I, I want to ask about uh, uh, the league moving from the '50s to the '60s. For all for all the emphasis you have, David, in the in the book on economic data and tables and so forth, you do talk about players. We've been talking about uh George Mike and you talk about their role in the league's early years. And I want to ask about two players you discuss in the book's closing chapters, Bill Russell and Will Chamberlain. So so what was their role in establishing the, the stability and the long term success of the NBA? I think that Bill Russell was important because
1: to some degree he's similar to Joe DiBlaggio. He comes on the scene, and the Celtics who never made the finals, even though they usually had a winning record, was Cousy and, and Bob Cousy and Bill Sharman. With Bill Russell, they pretty much are always in the finals, except for one year when Philadelphia supplants them. And they win every championship pretty much, except when Russell goes down with an injury. So in that sense, I think it established sort of a New York Yankees kind of a, an aura. So now people realize, oh, if you're following pro basketball, there's this team Boston Celtics. So it gives the league sort of a focal point of a team that people recognize as standard of excellence. Uh, Will Chamberlain, for my money, he's got to be ranked up there among the greatest American athletes of the 20th century. You, you, when you read about what he does at Kansas, apparently he's on the track team, and I, I believe he runs the high hurdles. He's a strong guy. I think he ran the 440 also. So this is not a slow-moving big guy. This is a big guy who's a true athlete, and he's just dominant. Chamberlain and, to a lesser degree, Russell are are huge drawing cards. When Chamberlain enters the league, fans flock to the game. They want to see this guy who can do incredible things. And I, I believe it's his second season in the league. He scores 50 points a game. You think of all the great scorers that have played since then, nobody's come close to 50 points a game. And if you think about it, it's more remarkable because he's not a guard. He didn't. Control the ball. They've got to get the ball to him. So every play, if they want him to score, they got to throw the ball to him, and everybody knows he's the likely target. It's not like Michael Jordan, who can basically bring the ball up himself and create his own play. But 50 points a game, just stunning. Now, as a measure of how primitive the league still was, of course, there's the famous 100 point game, which I presume most of your listeners are familiar with, played in Hershey, Pennsylvania, uh, not even played at the regular venue. But they would take these little side trips. It's played in Hershey, Pennsylvania. I believe the court was not even regulation, regulation length. Chamberlain hits 28 out of 32 free throws, which to my mind is the most remarkable facet of that game. At the end, after when he's in the locker room and they're talking about the 100 points, somebody scrawls 100 on a piece of paper, and that's the famous picture of Wilt holding the paper. But putting that in the context, and that's a pretty famous picture of the NBA, he's sitting in a high school locker room. They're playing in high school gyms in the 1960s. It's, it's incredibly primitive. It's incredibly bush league, Even in the 1960s when they've achieved some prosperity, it's just taking them a long time to really get this league up and running. And I, I have to salute the owners that stuck it out because they either had a lot of masochism in them or maybe they were visionaries, but it was a long, hard slog, even with – these superstars, and Chamberlain was, you know, he's sort of the Babe Ruth. He rewrites the record books in ways that it's just mind-boggling, and and Wayne Gretzky would be the third one that rewrites the record books of a particular league.
0: Yeah, I recall from uh, Bill Russell's biography that he was saying that even during all those years when the Celtics were winning championship after championship, uh, he, he said Boston was still a hockey town. And, and the Bruins were still the big draw. And, in fact, I saw in the in one of the tables you have in the back of the book, which shows uh, attendance statistics, still in the late the late 1960s, teams were drawing, what, about 6,000, an average of 6,000 people per game? Some of them probably
1: were. Um, the American Basketball League is it's even worse. There's Some of those teams that are struggling to get 3,000 uh, 3, people per game.
0: Well, Dave, we're almost out of time. and Sure. Uh, so we talked about your the the various data that you've used. You have tables in the book and so forth. And and uh, I actually looked through the tables. I I enjoy looking through tables as a historian. And and you, you know you find questions that that come up that aren't addressed in the book. And uh, uh, to close, I want to I want to take a tangent and looking at one of the tables you have that goes actually back from the 1950s to the present. Sure, and, table with
1: that. I've got my book with me.
0: Okay it's 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 the table that talks about or that presents the changes in different teams win loss percentage after those teams signed talented rookie players so for instance oh yeah uh by how much did the did the milwaukee bucks improve after signing lou alcinder and and you carry this all the way you go from the 50s all the way up to uh really the present time and and it's interesting in that it presents this view of of professional basketball as the one sport where a single player can make a huge difference in the fortune of a team so could you talk about that what you found in that research
1: Sure. Anecdotally, these, these owner did talk about the fact that some of these players would transform a team almost overnight. Ironically, Bill Russell was not one of them because the Celtics were already a talented team. And so he's the missing piece that they need, but they're already winning over 50%, so how much more can you improve them? Um, let me look up that table. If I recall, Tim Duncan is one of the guys who is associated with one of the biggest percentage increases. Now, Duncan's case is a little bit interesting because he, I believe David Robinson was injured that season, and that's how San Antonio got a lottery pick, and then they end up with Duncan. So with a healthy Robinson to go along with Duncan, the, the Spurs just rebound, and they suddenly become a, a great team again. Uh, but it, it is true that in many cases a single player seemed to make a big, big difference. Um, I, I think one of the surprises, of course, or two of the surprises are Patrick Ewing, uh, Patrick Ewing did not help the Knicks improve very much. See, in fact, I believe they actually they were worse the following season by just a little bit. So Patrick Ewing doesn't help his team out much. I believe Michael Jordan also did not help improve. Um, they improved somewhat with the Bulls, but not to the extent that a Larry Bird or the uh, Tim Duncan do. And that's very that's fascinating to me. Looking back at the older players that you were referring to. Um, Chamberlain boosted his team quite a bit. Uh, Wes Unsell is another one. And, of course, Luau Cinder Mm -hmm. uh, and everything. Uh, So it is true in this league, it seems that, and uh, obviously this is a very crude reckoning, but it does seem as though one player can make a difference. I suppose just on a a, a simple level, you could say, well, there's only 11 12 players on the team. So one guy makes a bigger difference than one guy out of, what is it, 49, 50 players on a football team? Although a quarterback as we've seen obviously can make a big difference. But it seems to be true in the National Basketball Association. One, one special player can really transform a, a franchise. And in the late 50s, several teams got their transformative players. The Celtics got Russell. The, the Warriors got Chamberlain. The Royals would get Oscar Robertson. The Lakers would get not just Elgin Baylor, but Jerry West. Um, and down the line, and these players would uh, establish their team, in most cases, as, as winning teams for a decade to come.
0: So, Dave, I'll ask you, you. You have a book coming out uh, this, this, this year, and I, I, you told me that you're working on two other books. You're on sabbatical right now, so can you uh, give us an update? What other projects are you working on?
1: Well, right now I've got a stack of note cards sitting in front of me for a book that's going to examine leisure in 20th century America, tentatively titled The Century of the Leisured Masses, a takeoff on the Thorsten Veblen, uh, The Leisured Class. The other book is a book looking at congressional hearings, where I got most of the data for this MBA book, and it's looking specifically at the antitrust aspect of the professional sports leagues and probably 15, 20 different hearings, so I read through all the records on them. The book out in November deals with the National Football League from 1946 to 1960, pretty much similar to this book in terms of the content and the approach.
0: All right. Well, Dave, thanks for coming on to the podcast.
1: Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure talking with you and I hope
0: it's been a pleasure for your listeners. You've been listening to an interview with David Sirdam about his book, The Rise of the National Basketball Association, published by the University of Illinois Press in 2012. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects from philosophy to pop music. If you like what you heard here, please follow New Books and Sports on Twitter, or friend us on Facebook. You can give us your feedback, offer suggestions, and find links to thoughtful sports writing from around the world. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thank you for listening, and enjoy your week.